This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. host of the podcast and as always the publisher of hoistycolor.net excited to bring you guys another edition of the hoisty colors podcast of course we'll be looking back at several ecu baseball games the pirates go two and two on the week this past uh, weekend going one and two against north carolina and one and oh against campbell in midweek action another big big week upcoming for the pirates which we'll get into, of course. And then we'll take a look at the hardwood. ECU under Joe Dooley has battled back after a midseason swoon, a six-game losing streak, to win a couple of games here down the stretch, four games over South Florida and Tulsa combined. And that has allowed the Pirates to finish the season with a winning record in terms of the regular season. They are now 15-13, and 13, guaranteed a winning record for the regular season. Of course, they wrap up play at Wichita State on Saturday, and then they will play in the conference tournament, possibly as the 7 seed, maybe more likely as the 8 or 9 seed. We'll get into some of those scenarios as well, break down the most recent basketball game. So a lot to discuss. We're going to start with baseball. We also got several questions on the Hoisty Colors uh, Twitter accounts. Uh, I believe my personal account asked for some questions and got several of those. So a lot to talk about on today's program. Focusing on baseball, we'll primarily talk about the North Carolina series, but just really wanted to touch on the Campbell series or the Campbell game on Tuesday. Quickly, the Pirates win that game, their first victory of the season, ten to three. Get a breakout offensive performance, so to speak, where no hit actually through the first four innings before coming alive for five runs in that fifth inning, and then scored one in the sixth, two in the seventh, two in the eighth to win the game, ten to three. Ryder Giles kind of had the big hit in that ball game. Lane Hoover had two hits. Uh, Giles finished with three hits and also a good pitching performance by several guys. Uh, Josh Groves ended up pitching out of a jam early. C.J. Mayhew got the win with three innings, one earned run allowed, three strikeouts. And then Danny Bill had two quality innings as well before Skylar Brooks ended up recording the final two two outs via a strikeout, which is something he would do again later in the weekend. So ECU gets his first one of the year. They bounce back from the sweep against Bryant. Then they head into the series at North Carolina. Uh, on Friday and Saturday before returning home. And Friday's game just did not go well from the get-go as starting pitcher Garrett Saylor gave off uh, a leadoff home run to Vance Honeycutt, who had a hell of a weekend for the Tar Heels. Really tremendous player, power, and speed. As a freshman, he's going to be a, uh All-American candidate for years to come. Unfortunately, ECU is going to see a lot of him in the coming years as this is supposed to be a three-game series each week 
or each second week of the season going forward. So he leads it off with a home run. The Tar Heels get a second home run in the second inning against Garrett Saylor and then a three spot in the third inning as some inherited runners come across the score against reliever um, Wyatt Shinkman. And, you know, we, we'll touch on the Carson Wisenhunt situation. I obviously have a bunch of questions about him on Twitter. But this is your second consecutive start without Wisenhunt due to the suspension. The guy you thought you were going to have out there going on Friday night, kind of setting the tone. And, you know, we heard a lot about Garrett Saylor's offseason through two starts, we just have not seen those adjustments he made this offseason. We heard so much about the sinking fastball, and really it's it's turned into more of a cutting fastball, which is not by design, and as a result, he's not getting the sink and the movement he's seeking. He can't really control it, and obviously it's, you know, if your fastball is riding instead of sinking, it's probably a little bit easier to hit if you're not out there throwing a deliberate cutter. So, he goes two and a third, six hits, five runs, one walk, three strikeouts. He continues to get some Ks with his slider. You know, he's always had good secondary stuff, but UNC was all over his fastball. Uh, they were they were waiting for it. Uh, they did hit, a, you know, a couple of breaking balls hard as well. They had a really good approach against Sailor. And unfortunately, with his inability to figure out that sinker, it just wasn't going to work. And we asked Cliff Godwin after the game, you know, what's going on? Is it mental is it, uh, you know, a technique thing? And, and basically Coach Godwin said, hey, if, look, if we knew what was causing the change from the bullpen into the inter-squad inter scrimmages to the game, we would have fixed it. So he pretty much admitted they don't know. And uh, that's something that they're going to have to look at going forward because you can't run a starting pitcher, much less a Friday night guy, out there continuously when he really, quite honestly, doesn't have command feel for his fastball, which is your number one pitch. So... Without that, it's going to be tough for Garrett Saylor to be an effective starter. Maybe he regains it this weekend in the Keith Clare Classic. I don't know. But right now, it's clearly uh, he's searching for it and hasn't been able to find it. So Pirates fall behind 5 nothing. They do battle back late and end up getting the time to run to the plate, I believe, in the 7th and then in the ninth. They don't have the play-by-play -play in front of me. But uh, we're unable to come up with the, uh, the, the game-tying hit. Bryson Worrell hits a home run to kind of jumpstart the offense, but it was too little too late. Again, you just can't expect to compete on a Friday night series opener when your starter goes less than three innings. So uh, that was just uh, it was going to be an uphill battle from the jump. Some positives to take away from the game for sure. Bradley Wilson, basically according to Coach Godwin, came to him, uh, I believe, on Thursday and just said, hey, man, I want to pitch. You know, I've been I've been waiting in the wings. Did not get the chance to pitch last year. Dealt with an injury. Wasn't really in the plans to begin this season. He said he wanted the pitch, and he backed it up. He goes out there three innings, one hit allowed, two Ks, no walks, ten batters face. He retired nine, and he needed just 28 pitches to do so. Bradley Wilson doesn't have overpowering stuff, but, man, he was just pounding the zone. His stuff played downhill to both sides of the plate, and sometimes that's all you need to do. I mean, yeah, you're not going to go out there and and give up uh, you know, only one hit over three innings or three shutout innings every time. But if you know he's going to pound the zone and, and force teams to beat him with their bats, you'll take that uh, as, as a coach, especially in college baseball where command can be an issue. So perhaps something to work with there. Maybe we see Bradley Wilson going forward in the Keith Leclerc Classic or on Tuesday at Duke. Uh, other pitchers who threw in the game, Ben Terwilliger, Terwilliger uh, threw a nice uh, inning out of the bullpen, struck out two before the Pirates ended up falling 7-4. to four. So another relatively rough offensive day for ECU, especially 
until the late innings. Lane Hoover had four of ECU's eight hits, and of course Bryson Worrell with the two-run shot. But outside of that, the offense did not do a whole lot against a talented UNC pitching staff led by starting pitcher Brandon Schaefer. We go into game two on Saturday. Knew this was going to be another tough matchup on the mound. People are really sleeping on North Carolina this year. I know they had a down year. Still made a regional. But, man, some of these arms they run out of the bullpen, uh, they got they got guys. I mean, they have recruited at a national level. They've got several pitchers that are extremely talented and really didn't, didn't pitch to their ability last year. Well, they pitched to their ability for the most part this weekend, and one of those guys was Max Carlson. He was a top 20 pitching prospect coming out of high school. Ended up getting hurt last year as a freshman. He was slotted to be their Saturday guy last year. This year, he's their Saturday guy again. He looked really good on Saturday. He goes five and two-thirds, four hits allowed, no runs. He ends up earning the win in what would be a, a frustrating 2 to nothing loss for ECU in Game 2 as North Carolina took both games in Chapel Hill and clinched the series. Um, Pirates just could not hit uh, the UNC pitching. Struck out 11 times, only five hits. A couple of those were infield singles. Did not really hit the ball hard, although when they did, they had some unfortunate luck. Cam Clonch missed a two-run homer by about two feet, and then was thrown out at second in a scoreless game. That was a momentum swing. And then you had Ben Newton with a man on first, hit a line shot down the first baseline, right to the first baseman. He steps on first. Instead of an RBI double down the line, it turns into an inning-inning double play. So you had those two sequences. You had some guys thrown out in the base pass. Just too many mistakes in this game. And then UNC gets its only two runs on probably a play that Bryson Worrell would tell you that he he should make. And even though it goes as a two-run double for Angel Zarate, the UNC outfielder, you know, it was hit right at Bryson Probably didn't get a great read on it. Ended up landing over his head for a two-run double in the fifth inning. And UNC, that's all they would need. 2 nothing. the victory. It overshadowed another strong performance from Jake Kuchmaner on the mound. He goes four and two-thirds. Pitched better than what his line is. He was charged with two runs. Struck out only one. Walked three. Hit one. The command did kind of get away from a little bit in the fifth. But for the most part, Kuchmaner... Through two starts now, has really pitched well. And again, pitched better than his line because C.J. Mayhew came in, gave up a hard hit off the bat of Zerati, but a play that I think you expect Worrell to make, even though it's not an easy play uh, the majority of the time. But those mistakes, they're proving costly right now for ECU, and they made them uh, throughout this series. They made them throughout the Bryant series. That's why their record right now is 2-5 and five instead of 5-2. and two. Those plays add up over the course of a season. And so for East Carolina, that loomed large on Saturday as they dropped the series. And again, another tough offensive performance, only five hits. And we saw that lead to several lineup changes heading into Sunday's series finale. And for a while, as ECU dropped to 1-5 and five on the season, it looked like it was going to be a tough task just to get the game in. Rain throughout the day on Sunday, but talking with ECU officials, the Pirates wanted to play, UNC wanted to play, and with the ability to bus home basically at any time, the Tar Heels uh, agreed to play later in the evening. So the game was pushed back to 6 o'clock. It was still wet. It was still cold. Shout out to the 37-95 who showed up. That's a good baseball crowd for February 25th, or 27th for a 1-5 team. And I was impressed with the fans who stuck it out, and a lot of them stayed until the end. ECU ends up winning the game 5 to nothing. Much needed win to close out the series. Again, they don't win the series, but they salvaged the final game. It was a pitcher's night for sure. Degrees, you know, I think it was around 40 degrees at first pitch. 
Um, it was cold. It was rainy. The ball was not carrying. So if you're going to hit it out on Sunday night, you had to hit the snot out of it. Um, ECU, though, found enough offense in the 5 nothing win. Five hits, and they made them count. They actually scored the first run in the bottom of the second, thanks to a pair of UNC errors and also a wild pitch. But I thought throughout the night, even though you only finished with five hits, it, we saw much better at-bats. We saw some hard contact that ended in outs. But more importantly, we saw a lot of deep counts. We saw some patient approaches at the plate. I just thought overall the approach, uh, the, the way they you know, kind of went to the, the plate with an intent, a clear plan, for the most part, was much better on Sunday night as opposed to the first two games. Maybe some of that is the comfort of playing at home rather than playing on the road in Chapel Hill, but they just look, look much better at the plate on Sunday night. Of course, they get the big RBI double in the fourth off the bat of Justin Wilcoxon to make it 2 to nothing, And then Jacob Jenkins-Cowart, the freshman, with probably the at-bat of the year thus far for East Carolina, gets down 0-2 against UNC reliever Gage Gillian, fouls off four consecutive pitches after getting down 0-2, and then lines a two-run double down the right field line in the seventh. That made it a 4 nothing game. It was really kind of the first moment this year where you just kind of felt... You just kind of felt the, the, the dugout and, and everybody kind of breathe a sigh of relief. Like, all right, here we go. That's that big hit we've been looking for. And, yeah, there were some on the road at Campbell, but it's just different when you're playing at home in a pressure, pressure-packed environment against North Carolina. And Jenkins Coward, the freshman, delivers. Jacob Wilcoxon adds on with a solo bomb. This one was not called back due to time in the eighth, and ECU wins the, the football or the baseball game 5 to nothing to improve to two and five on the season a lot of strong pitching performances of course in a shutout victory jake hunter with his second straight quality start as a freshman three and a third one hit allowed two walks three k's probably would have stayed in longer if not for the line drive he took right off the backside but the story of the night was carter spivey and you know i got to give credit to carter he's had his challenges in the past I think he struggled a little bit mentally. He's always had the stuff, but, man, on on Sunday night, he just came out attacking. He came out firing. His slider was was unbelievable. Uh, Justin Wilcoxon said he was throwing his cutter as well. He goes four and a third, two hits, shutout ball, seven Ks. The four and a third and seven strikeouts were a career high in both categories. Earns the well-deserved win and really just kind of changed the complexion of the game just based on how he pitched. You know, middle relief can be so critical because so few college baseball teams have quality middle relief. You know, most teams have good starters, good back end of the bullpen guys. But if guys like Carter Spivey, Bradley Wilson, Josh Groves, some of these guys continue to develop into quality relievers, it's going to make ECU tough to beat on the mound. And we saw C.J. Mayhew maybe not have his sharp stuff in the ninth. They go to Skylar Brooks. He, he issues a walk to load the bases in a 5 nothing game. And then comes back to get two Ks to end the game. 5 nothing. EC with a much-needed win. Everybody can breathe a little bit as the Pirates get back in the win column and sit at 2-5 and five on the season. So, again, not not maybe the weekend EC was looking to have. But overall, I thought the teams, you know, even though EC lost two out of three, you're, you're just a few base running or, or good breaks away from winning the series with Saturday's game. I thought ECU... You know, looked outmatched on Friday. Part of that is because you're missing your ace in Carson Wisenhunt. And UNC had its ace in Juco transfer Brandon Schaefer. 
and that makes it tough to win the opener. So, I, you know, I tweeted out after Saturday's game, this ECU, ECU team still has a lot of potential, a lot of pieces. There's a lot of upside here, a lot of guys finding their way. It's just going to take some time. Hopefully Sunday was a turning point. Again, another tough week ahead with Duke on the road, a regional team, and then you've got Keith Clare Classic with three uh, regional teams as well coming in from last year. ECU's in the midst right now of an eight-game span against regional teams from a year ago. Of course, that started with Campbell, continued with UNC, will continue on Tuesday at Duke, and then we'll wrap up this weekend as ECU hosts Indiana State, Michigan, and Maryland in the Keith LeClaire Classic. So this is not an easy part of the schedule, yet we've seen a lot of competitive baseball. I'm not saying that should be the expectations for ECU just to compete. They expect to win these games, but you know, you're a player player away here or there from winning these games, and that's what it comes down to. So hopefully this team can continue to make those adjustments, correct those errors, and make those plays going forward to win more baseball games. All right, let's dive into, I tell you what, let's take a quick break, and then we'll dive into your questions on Twitter, on the baseball front, and then we'll get into basketball before we wrap up the show. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Hoist the Colors podcast. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. All right, welcome back into the show. We are continuing on on the Hoist of Colors podcast. All right. Let's dive into the Carson Wisenhunt situation, at least as best I can. We got a couple questions about that. We'll start with uh, Cameron on Twitter. He says, do the rumors surrounding Wisenhunt being done for the year have any support? And if they do, why is the coaching staff trying to hide details and the length of the suspension? All right, so we talked last week, and we basically said, look, the rumor going around is potential PED use. And if it's an NCAA-administered test, it's an automatic 365-day suspension. But if that's the case, and again, a lot of rumors, nobody at ECU is confirming this. This is more in the baseball scouting community, talking to other national baseball writers. You know, it's not really a secret anymore. Um, but nobody's really addressing it head-on at ECU because they, quite honestly, can't say anything until it's official one way or the other. And Usually in these circumstances, you have an appeals process. My hunch is ECU is going through the appeals process. And once that process is completed, we'll have some official statement or clarity on the situation either way. I would expect if all this is true, and I have no reason to believe it's not to be, based on everything we're hearing, and the the, tent, the tests hold up, and Carson Wisenhunt is suspended by the NCAA for 365 days, that there's a very... There's very little chance he will remain on the team. Um, 
you know, there's some speculation he could even drop out of school and go pitch in the independent league to get drafted this summer. Again, haven't confirmed that one way or another. Just a lot of talks. You know, you're, you're at these baseball games. We're talking to scouts. We're talking to other writers, uh, other media people. Just a lot of stuff going on. So, um, I think the reason we haven't heard anything is because Cliff Goblin and the and Carson Wisenhunt, they're not going to say anything until something's final one way or the other. You know, there's a process here, and I think we're all kind of waiting through that fluid situation uh, as we uh, as we go through the days. I do think there's a chance we could hear something towards the end of this week, maybe sooner. Seems to be at that point in the timeline. But again, more speculation on my part than facts. So that's just what I'm hearing. have not been able to confirm it because... You know, they're, they're tight-lipped about this stuff until it's, it, until it's official one way or the other. Uh, Judge Smells asks, one obvious one is, do you see Wisenhunt returning this season, or if he goes Juco or to Pitt Community College, will he come back next season? We sure could use him. I think Wisenhunt is more than likely, if all this is true, and he doesn't pitch this year for ECU, which I would say at this point, based off everything I'm hearing, I'm, I'm leaning towards that, that he will not be back. I just don't see him staying with the program. I think he will pursue another avenue and try to move on professionally, um, whether it be the independent league or Juco ball or whatever. And I don't see him coming back at that point. He could probably still get signed by some team and take a shot. And if you're ECU and all this stuff is proven true, I just don't think, I don't think you save a spot for – for that type of guy in your program if it all comes out to be true. So, again, fluid situation. We'll see how it unfolds in the days ahead. But there's a reason everybody's kind of on pins and needles as far as addressing it head on. Just because there, there's a process as to play out, it seems. Alright, NC Pirate 13. He says, when is the last time men's hoops had more wins in February than baseball? And I'm going to say... It's been quite a while. I mean, it, it's been it's been a long time. Uh, you know, 2017 in baseball, they started pretty slow. Maybe that year, you know, I honestly did not. I just saw this question, so I have not had the time to research it. That would probably be your best bet, as I think they started that year, maybe two and four or so before rallying, winning some games. But yeah, the, the one and six or the one and five start was the first time since 1932 that ECU baseball has started 1-5 per the record books, and that is the first season of college baseball competition for East Carolina University. If they would have started 1-6, it would have been the first time ever per the record books that the program has started 1-6. So I'm glad I did not have to write that yesterday and that the Pirates got a much-needed victory over UNC. Uh, NC Pirate 13 also asked, after Spivey's performance last night, do you think he gets a weekend starter slot? So here's my thing with Carter Spivey. Um, it's certainly a possibility. You know, it's certainly a possibility. He, he's always had this stuff. You know, uh, and I think he's he's a candidate for sure. You know, if Sailor continues to struggle, they're going to have to, and if Wizen Hunt doesn't come back, they're going to have to find a, a third starter from somewhere. Uh, we also got this this question from Davis Searcy. He says, would love to see Spivey move into the rotation and Sailor back into a reliever role. Where he has thrived in the past, what are your options? What are your thoughts on that being an option, especially after he got stretched out yesterday? So I think it's a viable possibility that the coaching staff, though, they have to make the decision. Hey, you know, both Sailor and Spivey, they're kind of similar stories. Both of them have 
naturally good stuff, naturally gifted arms. They've both struggled, I think, with the mental side of the game. So the coaches have to ask themselves, hey, what you know, what puts Carter Spivey, what puts Garrett Saylor in the best possible position to succeed given their makeup as a player uh, from a skill set standpoint? And if they believe Carter is now you know, mature enough to handle that move into a weekend rotation role and kind of attack it head on like he did last night against North Carolina, then certainly I'm all for it. But that's, you know, the coaching staff knows Carter as a person better than I do. There have been times in the past where he's been given the shot to start in the weekend and it just has not gone well. Um, but this seems to be a potentially different Carter Spivey. I mean, he's been dominant through three appearances this season. And he looked pretty good at Campbell, even though he did give up some hits. Was able to dance around it with a strikeout. So, you know, that that's that's a call the EDC's got to make one way or the other. You know, there are some other candidates for weekend slots that I would like to see. I've, I think Josh Groves has some, some real potential to be a, uh, a dominant number one caliber starter if he continues to progress. He's got a, a you know, high, high ceiling. You know, you've got some freshmen who could potentially step into that role, whether it be a Merritt Beaker, young left-hander. We've talked about Nick Logish. He was in the, the mix for a starting role uh, this preseason. C.J. Mayhew's a guy that I think could be a starter if you really need it, although you like having that weapon and versatility on the back end of the, the bullpen. So, you know, one thing's for certain, I don't think this rotation is going to stay the same. I think Saylor, especially if he can't figure out his fastball, will eventually move out of the rotation into the pen. Maybe that will just take some pressure off him and allow him to be more of himself. Um, I think Cooch Manor has showed through two starts that, that the Jake Cooch Manor we know is back. Jake Hunter has not looked you know, scared of the moment at all. He's a freshman. He's, you know, at some point he'll probably hit a freshman wall, so you kind of worry about that a little bit for a weekend guy. You know, I'd venture to say if Carson Wisenhunt doesn't come back, we're going to see several starting rotation candidates and different combinations throughout the years, um, or throughout the year, throughout the coming months. And, you know, that's not a bad thing because I think they're, I think you, you need so many arms to get through a college season. And what we're seeing right now with ECU is you're, you're seeing a lot of arms start to emerge. And, you know, maybe ECU in the end doesn't have that shutdown ace, but maybe they end up doing it a different style this year and develop enough quality middle relief guys who can go, you know, two, three innings at a time to where they can win games like that. Like the Tampa Bay Rays have done that in the past at the Major League Baseball level. And I think we, we've talked a lot about the depth of this pitching staff still coming together. But through seven games, even with the two and five record, teams are only hitting two twenty one against ECU pitching, which is a very good number. So uh, I, I do like what I've seen. I think Carter Spivey will get a look if he keeps pitching like this at a weekend spot. I also think you know Josh Groves could potentially play his way into that role as well, and maybe at some point they look at CJ Mayhew in a, in a starting spot. He's done some of that in the off seasons in the past, so there's another uh, potential uh, candidate going forward. So. That's what the coaches get paid to do. I'm sure there's some very interesting conversations going on, just given everything uh, with the pitching staff thus far. All right, uh, Nick Bostic on Twitter asks, other than the lineup change for Game 3, was there an at-bat approach change that there was? It's It seemed to have worked. You know, it's hard to say without getting into the players' minds or without attending the pregame meetings, you know. I thought there was just better intent. And part of that was UNC allowed some base runners via errors and walks, and that kind of kept the pressure on them throughout the day. But, you know, I didn't notice anything crazy 
Uh, we obviously saw the lineup change, like you mentioned. We saw a lot of small ball, a lot of bunts, a lot of slashes, which is nothing really new for a Cliff Goblin team. But, you know, I, I don't think there was some huge mindset change outside of definitely they wanted to be patient against Peavy House, who was a little wild, had a really good uh, riding fastball. Man, that thing was dancing at 91-92, made it tough to square up. But I think once they saw him a, a time or through to the order, or a time through the order, they really kind of said, all right, let's make this guy throw it over the plate. Once that happened, he started walking some people, and then his defense didn't help him out. And then once ECU got the lead, and on a cold night, I just thought they had some really quality at-bats and, you know, took some borderline pitches that may have been called strikes that were balls, but overall just did a really good job kind of waiting out uh, the UNC staff, fouling, out, fouling off pitches, really making them work. It was just an all-around better better approach. Um, and I don't know if that was a, a better plan or what. It's hard to say without really knowing what the coaches talked about. All right, Alan Hudson says, could Spivey end up the Friday starter? He threw 60 pitches and was fantastic. We kind of touched on that earlier. I, you know, I'm I'm not a huge fan of bumping him into the Friday night role right away. You know, I think that's a lot of pressure. You know, moving him to Saturday or Sunday, I could see. You know, with, with Cooch Manor's experience, even though he doesn't have Friday night stuff, he might end up being your Friday night guy just because you know he's going to go out there, give you five, six quality ends and keep you in the game, you know, what we've seen thus far just hasn't given ECU a shot the first two Fridays of the season. Um, overall, you know, Sailor was pretty good in, in game one and I think was hit by some bad luck. But this past weekend, obviously, was not, uh, you know, really capable of keeping ECU in the game. Uh, Devin says, what is your biggest takeaway from the heels at-bats and what were the Pirate pitchers doing to make those at-bats occur the way they did? Well, the first two games, I thought UNC, you know, had a clear approach to attack certain pitches in the arsenal of uh, of ECU pitchers. You know, for example, they were all over Sailor's fastball early. Then once Sailor adjusted going to his breaking ball, they did a good job of attacking his breaking ball. And they seemed to be, they seemed to have a really good read on ECU pitching, especially the guys who have thrown a lot. Maybe that's why throwing in Bradley Wilson in a wrinkle situation they probably didn't have Bradley Wilson scouted very well. Weren't expecting to see him. I thought that probably made a difference. Um, so they were clearly prepared, clearly had done their research. And, you know, the biggest thing I took away from UNC is, yeah, they're young. They were really young last year. But, man, they got some serious talent. Um, the Honeycutt kid is special. You know, you just don't go oppo to right center as effortlessly as he did for the home runoff sailor without some serious, I mean, that's major league type power going to uh dead center or right center like that as a right-handed batter. And then to steal the bases he did, uh, he's going to be a special player. You know, they've, they've just got a lot of pieces as well. They hit the ball. Well, they hit the ball to the ballpark, a lot of power. I don't think they'll hit for the highest average as they face better pitching. I think they'll give up. I think they'll strike out a decent amount, but, Man, if they get their pitch, they don't miss it. Uh, they do a good job of scouting opponents, and I think that they kind of sell out on one pitch in, in a particular bat or in a situation. And if they get it, they make you pay. If you make a mistake, they will make you pay. We saw that a few times over the weekend. And then ECU really adjusted to that, I thought, in Game 2 and, and Game 3 and, and really pitched them better. Uh, Got to give credit to Austin Knight. He called some really good games as well as the pitching coach and then I think really limited them in Games 2 
in games three. So that looks like all the baseball questions. We have a basketball question from Nick as well. We will uh, we'll touch on that after we break down the two basketball games. So let's switch gears. Let's talk some hoops. And Joe Dooley's club is now above 500. They are 15 and 13 on the season. And I'll tell you what, uh, there was a one point in the season there on the six-game losing streak where I think they were getting smoked on the road against Tulane. Yeah, it was the stretch of games where they lost a heartbreaker against Cincinnati. They came back home a few days later against Temple. Really needed a good performance. Really kind of laid an egg. Had very little intent and energy. Lost to Tulane. Just got smoked by 20 on the road in an uncompetitive game. That dropped them to 500. 11-11, 2-8 in conference play. And it was at that point, it just really seemed like the season was going to go off the rails. And, you know, the Pirates go to Tulsa on February 8th. It was a, is a place that really don't play well historically. But in that game in particular, yes, Tulsa's down. But the Pirates found a way to play one of their better games of the year. They score 73 points. And really since that game, since that Vance Jackson 3, this team has played some good basketball. They are now 4-2 and two in their last six. They are 15-13 and 13 overall. 6-10 and 10 in conference play, which matches the most wins in American Athletic Conference history for ECU basketball. I know that's not a high bar to reach, but hey, it's a bar. And anytime you do that, I think it's a big deal. 12-4 and four is the highest home winning percentage since the CIT run when the Pirates went 17-4. and four. And, you know, you look at this stretch of games at Tulsa, 1-2. SMU played a really strong first half at home against an NCAA tournament caliber team and then just for whatever reason kind of fell apart in the second mm-hmm. half. Some of that was due to SMU shooting the ball really well. Uh, they lose that game 80-66. to uh, At South Florida, Pirates go on the road, take care of a down South Florida team, 65-57. At UCF, who the Pirates have lost to like 14 consecutive times. Honestly, I thought outplayed UCF in many respects, but fall in a last-second three by Darren Green. In Orlando, 69-66, to but a pretty good performance for the most part. And then they respond... Take out South Florida at home. Not the prettiest game, but South Florida tends to do that. They just beat Cincinnati on the road this past weekend, but ECU beat them 64-60. to And then the Pirates hold off Tulsa 64-59. to So really, you look at these final six games before the season finale at Wichita. And in five of the six, I would say the Pirates played a good game of basketball. Just came up short at UCF, played half a game against SMU, and for the first time under Joe Dooley, it feels like ECU is really playing its best basketball down the stretch. Certainly, the Pirates have taken advantage of a weaker schedule in conference play with Tulsa and South Florida four times. I mean, that that has to be considered. But we're also talking about this is the team that needed some breaks because they faced arguably the, the toughest stretch in AAC play for any team. On January 8th, they went at Temple to at Cincinnati versus Memphis, versus UCF, at Houston, at Memphis, versus Cincinnati, versus Temple, at Tulane. I mean, that is a brutal stretch in this American Athletic Conference schedule. Obviously, it didn't go well. But Joe Dooley, to right this ship, and then to come back home, and I think everybody was saying, hey, if ECU takes care of business in these final two home games, gets the Pirates above five hundred for the regular season, you know, that's a, that's a pretty big deal. Even though these two teams, ECU is favored to beat them, 
how how often have we seen ECU go into games at home? Maybe they're expected to take care of business and just don't play well. And they found a way to win these two games. They sweep Tulsa for the first time ever. They sweep South Florida for the first time in several years. Uh, you know, I talked about it earlier in the year in a podcast that we just weren't seeing the Pirates make enough progress in terms of the wins and losses in conference play. Well, given the way ECU has finished this regular season, all of a sudden the Pirates are trending up in terms of wins. And at worst, Joe Dooley is going to finish 500, which has not been done since the 2013-14 season, which is a span of eight years. One win either at Wichita State in the finale or in the conference tournament guarantees a winning record for the first time in nine years when the Pirates won the CIT. And we've talked a lot about Joe Dooley's contract situation. Look, financially, it makes sense for ECU to move on if they don't think Joe Dooley is the guy. He's owed a million dollars in salary next year. He's also due a $250,000 bonus in July. That's $1.25 million that the Pirates owe him. They could buy out the final year of his deal for $400,000. Financially, it makes sense, but then you look at it from the standpoint of, hey, this is now a program that is clearly trending upward in terms of wins, 15 wins for the first time in several years, possible winning record. I still think that the final few games of the year are going to play a big role in this. Let's say you go to Wichita and you lose by 20. Then you go to the conference tournament and you're bounced one and done. Then all this momentum is lost. But if ECU even wins one of those games, I think it, it, it kind of sustains the momentum through the offseason. And so it's still a ton to play for. The off week comes at a good time because this team's pretty beat up down the stretch. But a lot to play for going into the Wichita State game. As we mentioned, the Pirates can still finish as high as 7th in the conference, which would be you know a good milestone for this team to hit considering where they were just a month ago. But you know I look at this team and... You know, if I was John Gilbert, if I was the administration, the one question I would have for Joe Dooley before I made a, a final decision one way or the other is I'd had several I would have several questions for him, but the number one would be, all right, what is your plan to retain Tristan Newton? You know, I look at this roster and certainly I see some pieces, but I think Tristan Newton is kind of the key to it all. He's a guy who can score in different ways. He can drive it, he can shoot it. He can defend. He's a tough tough matchup. He's also capable of, of being, even if he's not scoring, to make great passes, to set up his teammates to score. He leads the team in assists. He's an all-conference player. He's the guy you need to continue to build this program around. But we've seen this in the past with Jaden Gardner, whoever. There's no guarantee you keep that player. So my question would be, how do you keep Tristan Newton? How do you retain him? Do you have an NIL deal lined up for him? What can I do to help you? And then my other questions would be, what's the plan to replace Vance Jackson's production? Who on the roster now do you see kind of being able to ascend to that next level among the underclassmen? And then obviously, if Winston Tabs comes back next year and is healthy, that's going to be some production. But there's no guarantee after several knee surgeries that's going to happen. So what's your plan for, let's say, Winston Tabs isn't able to make it back healthy? How do you make up that production along with the loss of Vance Jackson? And how do you retain Tristan Newton? So, for me, I see the program trending in the right direction in terms of wins, but there are several question marks as I look at this thing on paper, as with any basketball program with the transfer portal. But if you can sell me that you can keep Tristan Newton and you can sell me that you found a way to replace Vance Jackson and, and have some more incoming pieces 
whether it be Tabs or another big whoever, or just the improvement of players in the program, all of a sudden I can get behind a, a possible Joe Dooley extension. So, yeah, the last three years have not gone as maybe Joe Dooley envisioned them, but all of a sudden you're starting to see some momentum. Recruits see a winning record. They see a program trending in the right direction. You're that much more likely to land a potential impact transfer to pair with some of these guys coming back. And so what seemed maybe like an easier decision a month or two ago in terms of making a coaching change if you're ECU's administration, all of a sudden is much more difficult. And now if you do it, you're probably going to get met with some blowback because there's a lot of fans on Hoisted Colors. I, I would say there's still a group that definitely would not mind going in a different direction, but I think there's a lot of fans who are saying, we're finally seeing some progress and wins and losses. Why would we blow it up now? And so for me, as I look at this thing from the outside, I look at the roster and I say, how does this roster compete in the American Athletic Conference next year without Tristan Newton, without a healthy Winston's tabs, and without Vance Jackson? So those are three questions that have to be answered for me, you know, before I kind of see how next year's team lines up and projects to compete in the AAC. Because in the end of the day, yeah, the overall record is important, but you you should mainly get measured on your conference wins. And ECU, with six conference wins, again, is the most they've had under Joe Dooley, the most they've had in the American Athletic Conference era. And so I think six and ten – an improvement over Dooley's three and fifteen, five and thirteen, and two and eight conference records earlier in his tenure is a big deal, and they have a chance to get number seven on Saturday at Wichita State. We had our basketball question on Twitter. It was concerning Tristan Newton, and Nick asked, "Could we expect a Tristan Newton transfer?" I've talked with several sources surrounding the situation, and as these things typically go, I would say. There's certainly always a possibility of it. I do know Tristan is extremely happy here. Uh, Funny enough, his cousin, Aaron Jones, Packers running back, was in town to watch the regular season home finale and then was at Sup Dogs. I believe I saw that picture on Clip Brock's timeline, which was pretty cool, along with Tristan. And I know he, he really likes it at ECU. He really likes Joe Dooley. I know that he's a big Steve Rockefort guy. Unfortunately, Rock no longer here at Texas A&M. But I also know there have been dozens of schools that have reached out to Newtons, whether it be his AAU coach, maybe his dad, or whoever behind the scenes. You know, Legally speaking, no team is allowed to directly reach out to a student-athlete unless it's done after he enters the transfer portal. But these things happen behind the scenes and back channels all the time. And I know certainly teams are recruiting Tristan Newton. That's the reality of the situation. But I think if you're Tristan Newton, you have the chance to really continue to excel in a role here where you can play on the ball. You're the guy. I think he's a good fit for the American. I don't think he's quite enough athletic you know, to be an all-conference guy in a, let's say, the Big 12 or whatever. Um, but he's such a crafty scorer. He's so good at, at setting up his teammates with passes. He's such a valuable player. He might be able to do it. Regardless... I certainly think there's an argument to be made that he stays here and continues to help Joe Dooley and this staff ascend, especially with him playing on the ball, being kind of the focal point of the offense. So we'll see. I mean, I, I definitely think you never rule it out this day and age. You just hope that the Pirates you know, have a good enough relationship with Tristan and his family, and I think they do, just from talking with some people on staff, that they feel like they can keep him. But it's his decision 
when it's all said and done, his family's decision. So you just never know how that's going to go. But certainly, I think with the wins now starting to come and the progress, it becomes that much easier to, to, to find a way to retain them. If you were 13 and 15 right now and you had just lost consecutive games to USF and Tulsa at home, then I just think if you're Tristan Newton, you're kind of like, you know, why should I stay here if we can't win? And why not go somewhere else like Jaden Gardner experienced the success he's had? So, you know, there's two sides to every story, two possibilities, and only time will tell. But it's tough to retain players like that. There's no doubt about it, and people are in their ears all the time trying to convince them to do one thing or the other. And at the end of the day, it's his decision. So we'll see what Tristan Newton decides. Still some more games to play this season for East Carolina. There's no doubt. Uh, the one thing that does scare you is he's a little far from home as an El Paso, Texas kid all the way at ECU. But the other thing, too, is his brother plays at Evansville. And he, too, had some interest from other programs in the past and has elected to stay at Evansville. So I, I do think his family is loyal. They value relationships. And I think that that's something that could certainly play a role in, uh, in in retaining him at East Carolina. Now, if you fire Joe Dooley and you start over from scratch, then I think it becomes that much harder to retain Newton, given the fact you'd basically be starting the program over. So um, we'll see what happens, and we'll obviously cover that in the offseason. But more games to go, starting with Wichita State on Saturday in Kansas to wrap up the regular season. All right, that'll do it for the Hoist the Colors podcast. Thank you guys for listening, talking baseball, talking basketball. Lots ahead in the week ahead for ECU Athletics. Tuesday, I'll be in Durham covering ECU at Duke. Then I'll be at the Keith LeClaire Classic all weekend long as three regional teams come to town. Obviously, we'll be following at Wichita State as well as the men's basketball team heads to Kansas. Then we got spring practice just a few weeks away. It'll get started on March 15th for the football team. So we are almost into March. We'll probably be into March by the time you guys listen to this. And a lot to look forward to on the ECU Athletics front. As always, check us out on hoistedcolors.net. Sign up for VIP to get our latest recruiting information and access to our VIP chat, VIP stories, VIP message board topics, all that stuff. Had an awesome VIP chat on Monday. That's probably still going. So thanks to everybody who chimed in there and also for you guys listening to the podcast. We'll be back with you later this week. You've been listening to the Hoist the Colors podcast.